My one negative comment that I got on Amazon.com, and it was the second review, so then it brought down the whole average of all the reviews. They wrote, I really enjoyed the first part of the book because she has this really snarky attitude, and it's fun to read about, you know, history way back when and laugh about it. But when she used the same attitude about now and what we're doing now, then she lost me. And then I thought, you know, what nerve. And I think she, I forget, but it was like a really low review. But then I thought, no, that's the point. That's the whole point. Like, that's the point. You know, we can laugh about what we did 100 years ago, but then sit back because someone's going to be laughing about us in 100 years. So you that's exactly the point of the book. Maybe you were offended by it, but that's what I was trying to do. You know, we, you know and gradually pull you through. Um, oh, sorry. I'll turn myself down. Okay, is that better? Yep. Um, so I'll tell you, the reason why I got into history of childbirth is not so much the obstetric part, which I do find fascinating, but I was always interested, when I started reporting on medicine after medical school, I became fascinated in um, what I call like that gray zone of medicine. Because you go through medical school and you read the studies and you learn how things are, and then you get into the real world and nothing works that way. And and the, the sort of the results of the study have nothing to do with what people are doing. So I started to talk to my editor about it. I was at the Associated Press, and he said, well, why don't you start sort of collecting anecdotes, just collect things that you hear at meetings, you know, what's really going on versus what the studies are doing or talk to people. And then, of course, he added, but make sure we're not really offending a drug company or offending anyone else because we don't need a lawsuit. But that's another story. So I started collecting all this information, and then what brought me into OBGYN and it really, this kind of book could be written about any field, but I love the OBGYN because the patients are healthy. And that means that we could be more demanding. That means, you know, because when you're feeling ill, it doesn't matter, you know, if you have a medical degree or not, but when you feel really sick, you're just like, fine. Okay, fine. At a certain point, you're just going to listen and do what someone tells you. If you're feeling healthy and you've planned for years to become pregnant, you have in mind what you want in your pregnancy. And you're going to doctor shop or insist on a certain thing, and it sets up a whole different dynamic. And the other thing, when I started looking at some of the history books in childbirth, I realized, you know, traditionally it's, or people assume that this is a history of, you know, what doctors have done to women. But I didn't think that, like, being feisty women was just a thing of, like, the last 10 years. Like, we're not passive people. And if you go back in history, it wasn't always doctors telling women what to do. It was women saying to doctors, look, this is the way we want it. And, you know, it was 1900. If you don't do it the way we want, then we'll find someone else. Then we'll go to a midwife. Then we're not going to deliver in hospitals. And so it makes this really tense um, history or interesting history that has a lot to do, yes, with medical advances, but also a lot to do with the way doctors and patients are speaking to each other whether they're communicating, whether they're not, how patients react to what they see as sort of the narrative between doctor and patient. And, and then I guess lastly, I do love all the science of sperm and egg, and I just think it's fascinating. There's still so much we don't know, and it's still just this miracle that we make a human out of it all. And, you know, this is, uh, I'll get into this a little more in a bit, but that is what um, we thought went on, like we had little old people in our uteruses for a while. Um, so I'll just start with a little bit of my Columbia research, though. Um, and I'm, I'll read bits and pieces, but I want to chat about some of the research. Um, 
I want to tell you about a woman that plays a tangential role in the book, and I'm telling you about her because she was a Columbia person, um, so I don't usually talk about her in my book talks, but she's fascinating. And this whole chapter of my book came about because the librarian at, um, here in the rare book room at the time said, we just got all these archives from Viola Bernard, and there might be something. I have no idea, but there might be something. And they're not sorted yet. They're just stacks of papers, and this woman saved everything. She saved receipts. She saved everything. Like, she saved garbage. And they got stacks of it. And you might find something in your book. So, the, so there is a tie because it became a chapter in my book. But she's a fascinating woman because she was born... In 1907 in New York, became a psychiatrist and psycho psychoanalyst, and I think she was one of the people to um, start one of the psychoanalytic clinics here at Columbia. She was definitely the first person to initiate a low-fee psychoanalytic clinic to open it up for everyone. Um, she was born very wealthy, and I think unlike probably many of her friends that she grew up with, rather than do nothing or just become a wife of another wealthy person, she had this urge to like help society or help New York. So she became very involved. She used her psychiatry career um, and psychoanalytic career to um, help children. And a lot with, she, she was one of the first people to do like social psychiatry. How can we help communities? Um, so that was her big role. The interesting thing was from the age of 19 to about 24, she lived in an ashram in upstate New York and studied under um, Pierre Bernard, who first brought yoga to this country. She ended up marrying Pierre's nephew, um, Theo Bernard, um, who I think was an anthropologist here. And after they got married, they went and traveled in India and Asia, and she had just finished medical school. She came back to do her internship. He didn't, which I think should have been a clue right then that this marriage isn't going to work. So he stayed in India. She came back to do her residency. And sure enough, the marriage didn't last much longer. Um, and then nine years later, um, he was back in India, and he was killed. And that was, you know, I don't think anyone knows the details of what happened. But... Fascinatingly enough, she never remarried, and her specialty became families. Like, she worked with adoption um, agencies. And I'm sure if you could psychoanalyze her, I don't know if she always wanted a family and never had one or what her issue is, but she became very involved in, there were a lot of letters from adoption agencies saying, you know, should, is this person good enough to adopt? Is this family? And there was so much racism going on then, and she really tried to combat a lot of the racism going on in New York. The role she plays in my book is she was a big believer in what was called in the 1940s psychogenic infertility. She was a huge believer in Freud. And there was this theory that at the time made sense. And part of the thing of my book is that everything makes sense if you go back to their mindset is that we had just, we were learning about hormones then. We were learning about physiology. We were learning that, like, when you were nervous, your, like, cheeks flushed or your heart started racing. So we knew that there was this emotional body connection. So there was this theory that if down deep you really didn't want children or you really hated your husband and you really had this deep anti-maternal feeling, then that also could somehow affect your ovaries, or well, somehow affect your hormone levels, and then through this cascade of event, it would shrivel your ovaries and hurt your fallopian tubes. And, it, and so, you know, unfortunately, when you read some of the analysis that she had saved in those records, you know, it sounds so horrible now because it's like 
you know, women would come in and say, I love my husband, and it would, you know, that she would write, obviously hates her husband, you know, needs, obviously doesn't know her place in life, and this was the days, you know, if you thought you really didn't want kids, there was something psychiatrically wrong with you. So I'm just going to read a few pages from that section in the middle of the book, and then we'll head back towards earlier days. Doctors have always had a hunch that chemicals in the body controlled not only the menstrual cycle, but women's moods. Now that they nailed the brain-ovary connection, they felt they had women figured out. In 1939, in the keynote address at the, 1939, at the 52nd Annual Meeting of the American Association of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, and Abdominal Surgeons, now ACOG, Association President James E. King told his male-dominated audience that it was time for gynecologists to take over the field of female mental illness, closely linked to hormones. As he said, there is no subject which should have greater interest for this association than a discourse of woman herself. Not a discussion of her beauty or her diseases, for this we know, but rather an attempt by fact and fancy for her peculiarities and to explain her inconsistencies and those delightful surprises we so often experience in our contact with them. Most of his audience, of course, then was, were male doctors. Dr. King concluded, 19 years ago, I presented a paper before this association in an attempt to account for the physical and mental differences between man and woman. It was based on the then meager knowledge of the endocrine system. He said by the end of the 1930s, doctors knew what made women tick. They knew that women were mere puppets controlled by hormonal strains. Gynecologists could diagnose us and heal us better than any other professionals. But he wondered, what would these new therapies mean for women? Would we become more fertile, more vivacious, sharper, or as he put it, one may wonder what her position will be in the next hundred years. Will she, as some timid souls fear, mentally and physically dominate and enslave us as we have enslaved her in the past? Probably not. So long as she is controlled by her reproductive glands, she will remain basically the same lovable and gracious homemaker. And I love that that was said at a medical meeting. The president of ACOG, then. His name is James King. Now, wait, now I have a funny side thing that I ended up putting in a footnote about Dr. King. He was an, um, I was reading Gail Collins' Scorpion Tongues. It's great if you haven't read it. It has nothing to do with medicine, but it's about political gossip and the history of political gossip. Highly recommended. So I'm reading her book, and she talks about that um, Grover Cleveland was, you know, never got married. Or, yeah, he never got married. He was his bachelor. And there was this rumor that he impregnated this young nurse, Maria Halpin. And she named the baby, I think she was it Grover, I think, or she, no, she named the baby, the last name, she gave the baby's name Oscar Folsom Cleveland. So she named the baby's last name was Cleveland. And Grover Cleveland apparently was paying for whatever reason he said he was paying for. He was paying for this baby and gave her a stipend and found her an apartment. And it eventually, um, he had her institutionalized and he put the baby up for adoption. This is all from her book. And she writes that a Buffalo doctor adopted him, changed his name to James King, and he grew up to be a prominent gynecologist. So I'm like, oh my God, this is so weird. That's my James King from my book. 
who could have been like the president's son. So I emailed Gail, and I said, I don't know her, um, but she was so nice. She emailed me right away as if she had nothing better to do. And um, so I said, this is really odd, you know, that I think of an overlap in our book. And, you know, I might want to footnote this because I have this James King from Buffalo who's an obstetrician who became president of ACOG. I think he's... I think he might be Grover Cleveland's son. And so she said, yep, yeah, sure sounds like that to me. So who knows? But it's kind of funny, the overlap of that. Um, so anyhow, I'll just read a little more about psychogenic infertility. The lingering question, though, back then, prompted by the flurry of new discoveries, would be, do hormonal swings trigger mood swings or the other way around? Do mood swings cause hormones to shift? The answers were not mere academic bluster, but a crucial debate about the kinds of therapies women were offered. Do you give a woman psychotherapy or hormones? Does she need anything at all? Is she even sick? As Dr. Viola Bernard, a prominent New York City psychiatrist, said at a Planned Parenthood meeting, drugs were like band-aids covering up the mess, but they didn't get to the root of the problem, the psychic disruption that started the hormone malfunction in the first place. Um, so that's my little Columbia University thing in the book. Um, I'll just be my two main themes that sort of go throughout is when I started doing the book research, I thought, I want to find out when we started becoming like advice junkies. You know, like there's a zillion pregnancy books out. And even though women were scared to death a long time ago, it must have been a little more relaxing because you just got pregnant and you weren't bombarded. But actually that was wrong. Like as I started going back, except for Eve because she didn't have a mother or she didn't have sisters and she didn't have anyone telling her what to do, every other woman since then has been bombarded with advice and sometimes conflicting advice. I mean there were birth guide papyri. There were birth books written way back when. So it's you know, even though we might have a lot more questions or a lot more options now than women did, you know, I think on 100 years from now, they're going to look back and say, God, it was so much easier then, you know, when all you had were a few genetic tests compared to now, and all you had was this. But I think emotionally for women, it must have been the same. You know, do I use forceps or not? Do I do a midwife or a hospital? You know, so I think we're always struck with, you know, what's the best way to do it? And the other thing that sort of has gone throughout history that I learned as I did the research is we're kind of control freaks about this whole thing. We still, and I know, it, like I was kind of the same way, like there's still something in us that we cannot just say there's something we can't really control about this whole process. You know, it's nature. I had a miscarriage. I guess it was meant to be. No matter what we think, whether it's eating the right food, doing the right exercise, picking the right sperm, picking the right surrogate, somehow we're going to be able to trump Mother Nature and get a better baby than if we had left it on its own. And this goes way back. So, you know, if you look in ancient times, they were drinking a certain amount of red wine. They're having a certain amount of sex, you know. And so we're always kind of trying to figure out what the formula is. Um, so now I'm going to go back to, uh, to the beginning, to uh, where this picture comes from. And basically, um, in the old days... It was thought that um, that this is what the womb looked like and this is what your little person, old person, baby was like. And the feeling was that men controlled the seed and women were just sort of these hollow things that the seed got planted in and grew. 
And um, the nice thing is we now know it's kind of the opposite, that the egg does a lot more than the sperm. And we now know the sperm is just like a chunk of DNA and a tail, and the egg is so much more fascinating. And I have to tell you that these earrings, which I can pass around after, are egg and sperm. And I found them at Union Square, and I was with my daughters, and we're like, you know, those markets outside. And I said to them, God, that looked like egg and sperm. And my girls were like, oh my God, don't say those words in public. And she's like, they are. And the, the jewelry maker said, they are. And when you wear them, you can see how much larger the egg is compared to all the sperm. And it's true. And it is true. The egg is much bigger than a sperm. It's the largest cell in the body. And sperms are just like little nothings. Um, I mean, they are important in the process, we know. But they're not as complicated as the egg. On the downside, that's why it's um, not as easy to freeze and defrost sperm. So let me just read to you about what birth was like way back when. Generations before the Puritans made sex talk nasty, centuries before, before America's own 19th century Anthony Comstock enacted laws making the word contraception the equivalent of pornography, newlyweds and single women, for that matter, could enjoy reading detailed descriptions about sex all in the name of family planning. Gallen warned men that they'd better satisfy their mate or else she'd never get pregnant and she'd probably seek satisfaction elsewhere. Reading one 15th century birthing guide makes you think of an erotic game of twister. Head low, hips high, left foot tucked under the hip, right foot extended, and have an orgasm at the same time as your partner. Was this done in the privacy of your own bedroom or with a spinner and a bunch of friends? Jane Sharp, a British midwife writing in 1671, said, like so many others had said before and after, that penis size affects fertility. Too big was just as bad as too small. A penis longer than 11 inches would spray the womb with seed, somehow mucking up conception. A penis shorter than one inch would not touch the opening of the womb so female and male seeds would never mix. Within the normal penis range between 1 and 11 inches, the vagina acted like spandex, stretching and shrinking to suit the man. Or, as the experts put it, the vagina would dilate, contract, extend, or abbreviate itself according as it is necessary to bear exact proportion with the bigness or length of the man's yard. And by that extension, the pleasure may be mutually augmented. Because the clitoris was considered nothing more than the female version of a penis, doctors worried about clitoral size, too. Not for fertility, but because a woman with an oversized clitoris was destined to lesbianism. Yet British midwife Jane Sharp claimed there were no such things as British lesbians. It was something that happened to large clitoris women in the Indies and Egypt. There were remedies for small penis men. Sharp told them to eat beans and roughage, because windy spirits inflated the penis. Another doctor suggested a do-it-yourself treatment of horseradish cream rubbed three times a day for 40 days. If you did not want to do it yourself, you could ask your doctor to do it for you. Talk about doctor-patient relationships. <laughs> Babies were born from a woman's voluptuous, voluptuous itch to copulate. Why else would any woman dare experiencing life, experience life-threatening pregnancy unless she just couldn't help herself when passions overwhelmed? One guidebook told women that getting pregnant was the same as catching a serious disease, an opportunity to die. To make matters worse, it told readers that motherhood was a downhill slope into ugliness and old age, quote, a loss of beauty 
which is the most precious gift she has. When a woman wanted sex, her womb would open and allow the male seed to enter, facilitating baby-making. In the words of a 16th century guide, quote, when they have an appetite, the womb, desirous and covetous the seed, at that instant opens to receive and be delighted with it, unquote. Pleasure is due, they said, to four, quote-unquote, caruncles, beads, bumps, I don't know, lining the opening of the womb that close more pleasantly upon the man's yard, whereby the woman is also more delighted. Likewise, if you're not having a good time, I assume your womb would stay shut. The womb also seemed homeless, wandering all over the body, bobbing up and down like a yo-yo. A suffocated womb could not maintain a pregnancy. Alas, there were cures. You could sniff awful-smelling fumes to scare the uterus back to its rightful position, as if it had a mind of its own and would run away from the stench. Given that, well, I'll put in parentheses, but I, I wrote that given that animal dung and menstrual blood were used as standard therapies, the treatment must have been utterly repulsive. Um, the animal dung is a reference to um, Queen Medici, the 16th century queen of France, had trouble getting pregnant. Is it on the next page I'm going to get to? No, I'm not reading that part. Um, so she did what so many women did, and she went to folk healers, which a lot of people do first. You see someone alternative, you get herbs, you do something before you have to go to the fertility clinic. And she was, I think, only like 14, 15, 16 at the time. Her folk healer told her to soak her source of life in cow dung. I know, and, and, and her husband was never attracted to her, they said, and I just cannot imagine that that helped. And the other thing she did... This is before she went to a doctor. And the other thing she did, which I really thought was was um, a little louder. No, no, I think I'm turning down. Like, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, another thing that she did, which I really think is the most torturous fertility treatment ever of all time, including everything that goes on today, she had her servants drill holes in her floor so she could watch her husband having sex with his mistress, thinking she would learn a thing or two. Oh. And yeah, she did end up going to a doctor, and all they say is he diagnosed something, physical ailments. He diagnosed something. We don't even know what he did, but they had nine kids eventually. So, anyhow, that's her story. So that was the reference. Um, here's another option, though, they said, for married women only, was for the husband to, quote, possess her roughly, taking care that she assumes the bottom position and bring her on orgasm in this fashion, unquote. The vaginal secretions, they said, would wash away nox noxious fluids, the third and most intriguing option for women that had problems was to visit an obstetrics, a doctor's assistant who brought women to orgasms. One wonders how they advertised that job. <laughs> the vagina, too, was endowed with powers, able to lure sperm even without penetration. That, they said, explained how virgins became pregnant. Or it gave pregnant teenagers way back when the best excuse ever. A girl could get pregnant bathing in a tub where a man had recently ejaculated. The vagina sucked up sperm like a vacuum. There were, I'll also tell you, there was, and I refer to this in the book, one of the first books, guidebooks, written for married couples about how to get pregnant and all about women was written by monks. And I have no idea why monks decided that they were the experts in a field of how to satisfy your woman. Um, but this is what the monks wrote in their book. It often happens that a woman conceives if she is in a bath where a man has ejaculated because the vulva strongly attracts sperm. This has been attested to by experience. Along the same line, it's said that if a cat ejaculated on stage, 
And then a man ate the sperm-tasted herb, and I, I don't know how they did this experiment. He would grow a cat in his stomach and then vomit it out. Sounds more Harry Potter than birth manual. The blockbuster pregnancy guide of the Middle Ages was written by Dr. Eucarius Roslin. He must be considered one of the greatest marketing wizards ever. He was a government doctor in Germany responsible for tracking, tracking epidemics and licensing midwives. He was a statistician, not even an obstetrician. And yet his greatest insight was recognizing the power of the printing press. Others may have dismissed the gadget, but Roslin suspected that a book about birth would be a surefire hit, particularly if it were written in easy-to-digest prose. Most books were written in Latin, and medi most medical books were written in Latin and aimed at an expert audience, not for patient consumption. He was right. No matter that he never saw a baby born, so what that he never studied childbirth, he wasn't even up to date on the contemporary practices of those days. The Rose Garden for Pregnant Women and Midwives, his first book, focusing solely on pregnancy and childbirth, was published in 1513. It was a bestseller for 200 years, translated into five languages. It was a good idea. Um, so now I guess we can go to the next slide, which is a better picture than a story, kind of. Let's see. I have to do the arrow. Okay. There's not a huge long story about this, except that this was a do-it-yourself forceps made in Italy in the 1800s, and no surprise, it wasn't a fad, that, it was a fad, it didn't stick around too long. And I'm not sure if the doctors were thinking, oh God, we just don't want to deal with this childbirth stuff anymore, she can do it by herself, or what they were thinking, but what the picture shows is that you'd have the forceps in you, and then you'd handily, I guess, while you're in labor, there were, there were some doctors in the background of this picture that got cut off, so they're in the room with you. And then I guess while you're having your contractions with a forceps in you, you take ropes and you tie around your bedpost and put some in your hand, and then somehow you can, like, yank, the pull the, pull the ropes up, and it's a pulley system, and the forceps would get your baby out, all in, you know, one smooth thing. It didn't last long. Um, but forceps um, was... You know, that was sort of the beginning of doctors saying, you know, look, we have these tools. We can help women give birth. We have something over the midwives. Um, and so it was really sort of the first kind of high-tech thing that women did. And without going into too much detail on it, you know, I write about how they came about um, by this weird family called the Chamberlains. And I'll just tell you quickly, they were a family of male men, men midwives, they called themselves, they came to England in the late 1500s. They claimed they had this life-saving device. They did what so many other doctors did in those days, and they said, well, we have something over other people. Let's not tell them. We can, you know, rather than share it so everyone can save lives, we're going to just get the biggest market, and we're going to be the doctors of royalty. And they were. They became, like, the doctors to go to if you want your baby saved. And we do think that their forceps work. They didn't keep studies. No one was comparing whether their death rates were lower, but they definitely were sort of the doctors to go to. And eventually their forceps, which they carried around in this huge box that looked like a coffin because they didn't want to give any clues to what their forceps looked like. And apparently they also, I mean, we think, whether any of this is true or not, it still makes for a good story. But what... Um, I mean, we know the Chamberlains had these forceps. Some of the details about what jerks they were might have been exaggerated, but apparently 
when they went in to deliver a baby, they would blindfold the woman and put a whole tent over just so she wouldn't see what the forceps looked like, as if in the middle of labor, she's going to be like looking over and taking notes and then try to steal their design concept. We found out what the original forceps looked like. Um, I'm just going to skip over a bunch of story. In the 1800s, when this couple moved into a house in, in the countryside in London, and the mother-in-law, or the, the um, the mother of the of the pregnant woman who was there at the time noticed a crack in the floorboard. So I guess not telling her daughter, she just lifted up the floor. I was kind of figured that like, why did she rip apart their floor without even consulting them? But anyhow, she did, and she found this box, and it had all these antique medical tools, which she could have thrown away. She could have just said whatever these weird things, but she brought it to a surgeon in town who happened to have an interest in the 1800s of medical history. And he said, oh, Peter Chamberlain lived here before, who was one of the descendants of the Chamberlains. This must be the original Chamberlain forceps, and they found out that it was. So that's our, our little forceps story. We can go on to the next picture now. Okay, this is a picture. It's a really bad picture, but I had to have it in the book. I mean, it's, it's an interesting picture, but it's a terrible image of it. These are women lying on top of the roof of New York City's Lying-In Hospital, because um, we, before we understood what caused childbed fever, which we now know are germs, before we knew about germs, we tried everything to keep these women alive when they got sick. And so someone said, well, gosh, you know, tuberculosis sanitariums, they just, like, put people outside and let the fresh air cure everything, which, of course, didn't work, but we thought did work. Why don't we do that for these pregnant, infected, I mean, these laboring or women who just gave birth, infected women, we'll just put them on the roof. And they did. And, of course, um, being the good statisticians that they were, you know, any woman that survived proved that being out and airing out your genitals on the roof of lying in hospital obviously cured childbed fever. Um, so... This was a really um, interesting part of my research. I was looking at sort of the birth of maternity hospital. The lying in has amazing records. They have scrapbooks. They saved so much. So I ended up looking at the history of the lying in. Really, I mean, it's a, their own specific story, but I think it, um, it exemplifies what was happening in all maternity hospitals, you know, in terms of their rise and getting women in. But the lion is particularly interesting for a few reasons. Um, one is, I like to say it's one of the first ever maternity hospitals because it actually did start, some of the people that started, it started as a tenement um, downtown in the late 1700s when this, um, a Columbia-affiliated doctor, Dr. Hasek, who's done like a million things, he started like our first botanical gardens, he did like a million things around New York. But he was very worried. He, he said that we have to do something for the poor women in the late 1700s that were dying during childbirth, and he wanted to set up a clinic. He claimed that his interest in childbed fever was because he thought that, because of the yellow fever epidemic, he said yellow fever was killing more men than women, and so these women were left alone um, with, you know, pregnant and often had no one to help or no support. Um, it's an interesting theory. Again, they... Around the time it was thought that men were more susceptible to, to yellow fever, we didn't know that mosquitoes transmitted it. Pregnant women in those days tended to stay inside, so they didn't get bit by mosquitoes. Men and non-pregnant people were going out, so they thought that pregnant women had some sort of protection against yellow fever, like something in their body, but actually they just weren't getting bitten. 
Um, but I think the real reason why he got interested in helping women, his wife died in childbirth during the birth of their second son. So to me, that seems more of a impetus to try to help women. So he got started. And yeah, again, I'm going to make this long story short. But he got started with this tenement. He didn't. He always wanted to stay independent. He couldn't. He ended up joining up with New York Hospital at Cornell. Um, he had a ward. They, there was a maternity ward in the hospital for a while in the early 1800s. Um, and, well, this was now, I'm sorry, it passed from Hasek to other doctors. We're going to skip over about 100 years. And the, this lying in hospital became a ward of Cornell. It was a bad relationship because, you know, everyone thought, oh, God, pregnant women, they transmit diseases, they're all dying, and then what if they transmit diseases to our wards? And sometimes if the wards were packed, you did have to put women on other wards. And it was just, no one really wanted all these sick pregnant women around that you couldn't do anything about. That was one thing. And the other thing was the people at this time that were running this lying-in foundation were, were really good at collecting money. They had inns. The doctors in charge, this guy James Marco, he was good friends with J.P. Morgan. He knew how to get funds. And the hospital also got angry at him because he figured all the funds he took in would go to his department. And the hospital thought, no, but you're in our hospital, so you can give us some of the money. So there was, shocking as it may seem, there were some issues then in terms of who got the money that was donated. And yeah, they ended up leaving. It didn't work out. So they left in 1827. Um, so I followed this story. You know, in the meantime, a few things were going on. One is the doctors that were in charge of, this, of the maternity ward were trying to figure out, we've got to do something about childbed fever. So they tried all these weird things. And it wasn't so different from what doctors in other areas were doing. Um, they tried, they, they published a cure that they had, this one woman that came in, and oftentimes they would say it wasn't their patients that got sick. It, were, it was women that were delivered by midwives in their own squalid tenements that then came in sick and wanted help. You know, whatever. I'm sure some, you know, it was kind of went both ways. We don't have good statistics. But these women were sick. One of their cures that was written up, I think, in The Lancet said that for one woman, they put her on the roof, um, she was so ill that they put, took her off foods. They drew blood from her to get out the toxins out of her. Just imagine what this woman what it must have felt like. Just gave birth. She's having blood drawn from her. No food. They put her on a diet of water and whiskey. And they said, um, after 40 days, she got better. It's amazing that she survived. But anyhow, they wrote this up as, you know, cause and effect. They cured her. So, um, and then she went home in this emaciated, drunken state, I guess, ready, ready to deal with motherhood on top of that. So, anyhow, so I followed this story along of the lying in, and they, they were great. I mean, they were always great at fundraising. You know, I compared them. There were some hospitals at the time in Brooklyn that would, maternity hospitals that would do bake sales. The lying in had this, I found the invitations to a fundraising party they had at the Waldorf. I'm like, name a name, Roosevelt, Vanderbilt. Any of those big names, they were on the list. I don't know if they went, but they were definitely on the invitation list and on, like, the um, people that were hosting it. Their party was at the Waldorf, and it started, I think, at 9 o'clock at night, dinner served at midnight, dancing till dawn. And so they knew, they knew how to get funds in. And they kept getting more and more popular. J.P. Morgan kept buying them bigger and bigger buildings. Um, in the meantime, people hated the guy James Marco, J.P. Morgan's doctor and good friend, 
because I think Marco at a certain point, while he started out as this young doctor, all of a sudden realized, I have the money, I have the support, I run a hospital, I can treat my staff any way I want because it doesn't matter. You know, I have this security. And at one point, um, even the Chicago papers covered this, his entire staff quit. And he said, doesn't matter, you're all replaceable, which probably wasn't good management skills. Um, so eventually, he got other people, and um, Marco was eventually resigned and kicked out of the hospital. It, the lying-in ended up going back to Cornell. They were back and forth. They did become a ward of Cornell. And then I was like, okay, now how do I end this story? So then I thought, well, I was born at the lying-in in 1962, and my mother, actually, I always heard, you know, she got out of there. She had to sign a form because she got out really fast because she heard there was a staph infection going around. And she said, fortunately, it was around Christmas time, so all the care, like, everyone was just focused on, like, how to decorate the maternity ward. So she actually got out. She didn't even have to sign anything. Like, no one noticed. She just left. And they were all sort of hanging all the Christmas trimmings, and they didn't realize that she just, like, walked out. But she wanted to get out of there. So I thought, well, that's a great ending to the chapter, because, like, I start with germs, and I end with me not being, not germs. But then I decided, no, I'm keeping me out of the book. So... It, you know, even though it was kind of nice in my own mind, I, I left that out. And then I said, gosh, how do I end this chapter? So then two things happened. One is I thought, if this guy James Marco was such a big deal and friends with so many rich people and ran a hospital, there must have been an obituary or something written on him. So I Google it, and like in two seconds I get his New York Times obituary. And I was gleeful because two years, and this is when I thought, as I was writing this chapter, I kept thinking, I wish I could do fiction. I wish I could just, like, make this into this great story. But I can't write fiction. And when I found, when I read his obituary, I thought, this is why I love nonfiction. Because sometimes, like, nonfiction things happen. And you're like, oh, my God, I couldn't have thought of this. And if I did think of it, it would have been a stupid ending. But because it's real, it doesn't matter. So the real ending is that two years after James Marco resigned or was kicked out of his own hospital... He was at church, and he was at St. George's Church, which is this beautiful church on 18th Street, and it was sort of where all, like, the connected people went to church. So he went, and it was like, he was um, sitting in church, and a crazy person came in and started firing a gun. It was 1918, and a few, there were a few near misses. He was the only one that was hit, and so he was shot in the church, and, you know, obviously everyone's flipping out, and they don't know what to do, so, like, where do we take him? Well, the closest hospital was his own maternity ward that he was kicked out of. So they drag him to a maternity ward. At that point, it was on 20th Street. And they drag him up to his own maternity ward that he had no rights at anymore. And that's where he died. So I'm like, oh my God, this is great. He died in the place that he was the hospital that he built up, that he was kicked out of. So if I thought, if I, and I thought, God, if I had even tried to end it that way in a fictionalized matter, that would be really stupid. But it happened. So I was so happy about it. And the other thing, and it gave me an ending. The other thing that I saw was when I was working on another chapter, on my natural childbirth chapter, I got, um, I, I started to collect all these life magazines. The old life magazines are wonderful, and they would in, intermittently get really into birth of the baby. And you know, it was always iffy how they could do it because it was still considered obscene. And Life Magazine in 1938, <coughs> on, on one of their campaigns, to reduce maternal mortality, they decided, you know, people should be educated. So they, they did a centerfold called The Birth of a Baby. And I read about it because they had a big editor's note 
that said, you know, we intentionally made this the centerfold where the staples are. The following images may be too obscene. If you leave this magazine around the house and you have children, you might want to rip out. We made this, you know, thing easy to rip out. But on the following pages, you will see a photo essay of how a baby's born. So I ordered this Life magazine, and it comes, and the pages had been ripped out. So I had to call the guy, but the guy was so nice. He sent me another copy, but I thought it was kind of funny that someone actually said. So I'm waiting for this, you know, image to rise. And basically, this photo essay shows a very happy, beautiful woman, a headshot in the beginning, and then the last is also her very happy headshot holding a baby at the end. And then the middle pictures show, and it, it says... Um, you know, something about home births. You know, here's, and they gave the woman's name. Here's so-and-so giving birth at home. And it shows this beautiful woman lying on a bed covered with all these white sheets. And you slowly see this little baby emerge from these white sheets. And so, and that's the whole essay. But the best part is that it's in the footnote of the, in the small print at the bottom of life, it says, um, the photos of the woman in the beginning and end are some famous actress, I forget her name, but some famous actress who wasn't even pregnant, hence why she looked so good in labor and holding the baby. The images of the baby was taken by someone who wants to remain anonymous, and that was taken at Cornell's lying in. So it was actually a hospital birth that was photographed to show the benefits of a home birth. <laughs> so, and then, yeah, so that's why I ended up that chapter with those two things, which I thought was... Um, which gave me a great ending. Um, and now I guess we can go on to the next picture. Which should be, it should be my twilight. Um, if it's in the right order, yes. Okay, so um, this was my twilight sleep chapter. And the thing that I like about twilight sleep is it really shows doctor-patient relationships in action and, you know, how women will push for things. Sometimes sometimes the way women push for things, I think, is a reaction to the kind of relationships that they're having with their doctors. And I said this recently in an article, and I got bombarded with, like, not, I didn't get bombarded with hate mail, like, people, like, wrote back, like, on, like, the Times website that they thought that I was saying that, like, you should listen to everything your doctor said. Like, no, I didn't say that. I was talking about, like, when doctor-patient relationships go sour, you might want things that are not in your best interest just because you don't want to do things that your doctor's telling you. And I wasn't meaning it to say you have to listen to everything, but whatever. Twilight Sleep came about um, because um, two American women heard about this wonderful way of giving, giving birth in Germany. They went over to Germany as two reporters, um, and they, in, they went to the Twilight Sleep um, clinic, and they interviewed doctors, and they interviewed women who had given birth by twilight sleep. They never saw a baby born by twilight sleep. What they heard was, I went into the hospital, and I said to my doctor, I'm lying there in bed, and then eventually I said to the doctor, when is the baby going to be born? And the doctor just handed me the baby and said, here is your baby. And I didn't remember a whit about it. It was wonderful. You know, the whole thing happened, and I don't remember anything, and this was great. It's pain-free. What they forgot to mention, because the women didn't know, is that the way twilight sleep works, it's a mix of morphine and scopolamine. You feel pain, but you don't remember it. But then, of course, some of the women said, well, if I don't remember it, then I didn't feel it. So that goes into the whole philosophy of pain issue. But part of it is you start 
kicking and around so much because sometimes you have hallucinations when you're under these drugs that during the birth process they have to actually kind of tie you up the way these women were tied up so you don't hurt yourself during the birth process but then again you don't remember that you were tied up so some women said well who cares I don't remember you know, these women came back, they wrote these articles in women's magazines that said this is the best way to give birth. In those days the medicine wasn't, it wasn't a known dose, it was just sort of doctors fiddling the amount. A lot of women went to their doctors here in, you know, in New York, and of course these were wealthy women who could afford to go to Germany to learn about it, and who were reading these magazines, and they went to their doctors and said this is the way I want to give birth, and a lot of doctors said we're a little nervous. You know, we're not, we don't, you know, we don't think this is a good idea. Although they said it in a kind of nastier way sometimes. And so women thought, well, you're just saying that because you don't care. You don't care that we're in pain. So it became what I thought was passing this feminist crusade of women marching in department stores and showing, like, Twilight Sleep babies are healthier. And we have to demand that we're allowed to be drugged out. We have, we're demanding to be knocked out, which I thought was very interesting when you think about the 70s when we said, no, 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 do not give us drugs. And we demand to be awake. This was like, we demand to be knocked out. So what women did was, and this is a little anecdote that also didn't go in the book because it, it was just sort of a personal thing doing this story, was um, women started fighting, you know, to if, if your doctor didn't want you to give birth with twilight sleep, you found one that would. So a group of women found some young doctors and basically said, look, if you give birth our way, we'll buy a building. Like, we'll get a hospital for you. So I'm researching this. And as I look at the building, I'm like, oh my god, I know that building. There's a building on 72nd Street, and I still haven't knocked on the door yet, and I still want to. There's this um, house on 72nd Street that's right across from the Eleanor Roosevelt statue. And it's this absolutely gorgeous, if anyone lives in the neighborhood, is this gorgeous Beaux-Arts brownstone. And every time I would take my kids into Little League when they played there, I would say, oh my god, look at that brownstone. It's gorgeous. Doesn't it make you wonder who lived there? And, you know, my kids are just like, can we just go? Um... So I'm, and I'm, I'm up at the Radcliffe Library researching Twilight Sleep, and that's it. It was the same address, the same picture. That beautiful house that I always said, I wonder whatever went on there, was a Twilight Sleep hospital. And it was photographed and in the New York Times because the neighborhood was in an uproar because they didn't want to hear women screaming. They didn't want dead women carted away. I mean, that's what people thought of childbirth. You just did not want all this death around. So there was this big neighborhood uproar, and I think the house event, you know, they eventually had to move, the maternity hospital was eventually kicked out. But the next Little League game, I said to my kids, okay, here's a great story. Now I found out about the house. So I told them, and I'm like, it's related to my book that I'm working on. This house is a maternity hospital. People are getting born here. And they're like, okay, we're really seriously going to be late. Can we just go? <laughs> like, there was no, like, oh, that's cool. No, you know. Um, they were 10 at the time, and now they're teenagers, and I actually think they still wouldn't be absolutely fascinated with it. Um, anyhow, we can go to the next picture. Okay, so this chapter is my one angry chapter in the book. And this is my DES chapter, and I'll read a little bit from it. Um, DES um, is the drug that was given to women to prevent miscarriages. And I'll just say that it gets mixed up a lot with thalidomide. Thalidomide was the other um, tragic birth story. Thalidomide um, was the drug that was given to women to prevent morning sickness. And it's interesting because when thalidomide came in the market in Europe, a lot of women in America were begging for it. And people really want on the market here. And this 
female director of the FDA at the time, Frances Kelsey, said, you know, it, I'm not, it looks like an interesting drug, but we really don't even have enough data. People were so angry at her. She was like the most hated woman for being such a jerk about not approving thalidomide. So it turns out that thalidomide babies are born without limbs often. It causes serious physical defects that you see right away at birth. And although there were some American babies born um, with defects, all those American babies, there's only 26 of them, were born overseas. So there wasn't, thalidomide was never on the market here in America. If you wanted it, you had to be like you were a soldier overseas or for some reason you're overseas. As soon as they found out that thalidomide was dangerous, Frances Kelsey, who was hated because she was like not allowing this drug, became this huge hero. I mean, because you know, we go crazy over drugs here in America. And to think what thalidomide tragedy would have been if it were approved, you know, it's horrible to think about that. DES though was approved. DES was a drug that was meant to um, prevent miscarriages. And I'll read about it in a second. And here was, you know, talk about, um, ads, there was inklings of dangers early on, but this was the ad, you know, for one of the DES pills, and it basically says in small print, you know, it helps everything, your baby's going to look like this, and your baby's going to be better, and it can't hurt, and so I'm just going to read a little from my uh, DES chapter. From 1938 to 1971, Millions of pregnant women took high doses of a synthetic estrogen touted to prevent miscarriages. The scientific name for the drug was diethylstilbestrol. Most people remember it as DES. The tragic irony is that the drug did not prevent miscarriages, but it did harm babies exposed to it in an insidious way. The dangers did not emerge for years after exposure. At its worst, DES triggered a rare and deadly form of vaginal cancer in about one in every 1,000 women whose mothers took the drug. The cancer struck women, this cancer struck when women reached their teens and 20s. Some DES cancer survivors have had their vagina, uterus, and fallopian tubes removed. Thousands, perhaps millions, of so-called DES sons and daughters are infertile. There are no reliable statistics. Many women who have had several miscarriages had been exposed to DES. The drug also triggered malformed reproductive tracts, such as a cervix that does not shut tightly to hold the growing baby, an incompetent cervix. To be sure, thousands of DES sons and daughters, the lucky ones, were spared the toxic side effects. Yet virtually every woman exposed to DES has vaginal adenosis, benign cellular changes that can be precancerous and that require constant monitoring. It goes without saying that it goes without saying that physical defects belie the harsh psychological wounds for mothers, daughters, and sons. Mothers who thought they did everything they could to maintain a healthy pregnancy were creating girls who would never have the same experience. The tragedy, wrote doctors Roberta Apple and Susan Fisher in To Do No Harm, is that the very people who are supposed to protect you, doctors and mothers, were the ones who caused harm. It's the providers of early tender care who have let down the DES daughters and sons, said Pat Cody, a, mother, a DES mother and health activist. Unwittingly, the mothers brought pain to their children, the physicians brought pain to their patients, she said. You can't imagine what it's like to think that with the best of intentions, you might have poisoned your daughter. Her life might be in danger because of something you did. 
You blame yourself. You can't imagine facing your daughter and telling her, said Pat. What is even more troubling about the DES saga is that even when solid evidence proved that the drug was not effective, it continued to be given for years. Oddly enough, in 1959, when DES was hugely popular among women, um, it was found that these um, poultry workers were growing breasts and had other odd symptoms. And they did a, they did a scientific um, study of this and realized that DES was given to chickens to sort of pump them up and sort of move the factory along. And these poultry workers were sort of nibbling on the carcasses and the necks. And because they were ingesting these DES-laden, you know, high doses of the DES from the carcasses, they were having side effects from the estrogen. So in 1959, DES was banned from poultry, so chickens were no longer allowed to take DES, but yet women kept taking it. You know, it was okay for humans, but not okay for our chickens. The drug was finally pulled in 1971 after a few oncologists proved the cancer connection. The other dangers would emerge later. And I know I'm going out of order, but I'll just tell you one thing. Um, Dr. Herbst, who was the oncologist that found the connection between DES and vaginal cancer, he said to me, I said, how did you think of this? Because <clears throat> there was nothing really else then that you would think of that you took during pregnancy that could have an effect you know, years later. And if someone had said to you, oh, you're taking this pill, but we, it might have an effect when your daughter turns 20. Like, you'd think, like, that's weird. Like, it just, you know, there was just, there was nothing thought of in embryology in those terms then. Dr. Herbst said, I said, how'd you come up with this idea? And he said, actually, and it goes back again to sort of doctor-patient relationships again. He said, when these cases of young women with vaginal cancer, it's a rare cancer, and when it does strike, it tends to hit older women. So when these seven cases emerged of seven girls between the ages of 15 and 22 with vaginal cancer, all who had been at Massachusetts General, um, one of the moms said to Dr. Herbst, you know, I don't know, like I was given this drug DES when I was pregnant. Do you think this has anything to do with it? And interestingly, he listened to her. I mean, he could have, you know, she had no medical background, no nothing. She just threw it out. And he said to me, you know, then what, when, after she said it, I do remember that there were some obscure studies written about estrogen causing cancer and maybe DES. So then he said, maybe I should investigate. And so he took her lead and went on, and then he was the one that actually did the first conclusive study proving vaginal cancer. So, but one of the points in my book was, which I'll read about now, is you know, what were these women thinking then in the 50s? Why would anyone pop a pill while pregnant without thinking about the long-term side effects on a baby? Today, every pregnant woman scrutinizes labels, surfs the web before drinking diet soda. What was going on? One of the going on, one of the things going on was that the child one of the childbirth myths from antiquity right up to the 1950s was that dangerous things did not pass through the placenta or or into breast milk. That was nature's gift to the perpetuation of the human race, or so it was thought. Quote: There was always the assumption that the placenta was protective. We called it the placental barrier, said Dr. Roy Pitkin, a UCLA professor emeritus of obstetrics and gynecology. The term itself implies protection. Your fetus was barricaded within this placenta, safe from all the nasty things out in the outside world. That explains why so many women continued to smoke then during pregnancy. Women's Home Companion, which was a popular women's magazine then, told readers that alcohol and cigarettes, quote, play no significant role 
in your pregnancy. Now, there had been scientific studies demonstrating just the opposite, that tiny molecules, the kind that make up most medicines, slip easily through the placenta. But that did not change the way doctors practiced or how women thought about their pregnant bodies. Even in the 19th century, a handful of savvy doctors noticed newborns with traces of lead or mercury, common treatments that had been given to their pregnant mothers. Francois Magendi, a French physiologist, injected camphor into pregnant dogs and saw the drug in the fetuses. W. Reitz, a German doctor, gave mercuric sulfite to pregnant rabbits and found the drug in fetal brains. Working in reverse, an English scientist injected strychnine into fetal dogs and the pregnant mothers convulsed. Another professor in, German, in Germany found chloroform used as an anesthetic in the umbilical cord of newborns. As Donald Caton, who wrote a history of, of obstetric anesthesia, said, these studies should have alerted physicians, but they didn't. A quarter of a century later, Paul's wife, a Swiss physician, conducted scrupulous experiments to prove that when a mother uses chloroform or even takes aspirin, it gets into the fetal bloodstream. Besides the fact that we all thought the placenta was like the Berlin Wall around our babies, we had faith in science then. DES peaked in popularity in the 1950s when Americans were the most optimistic we've ever been and will ever be. We considered ourselves victors in the war and victors in the laboratory. We were heading to the moon, combating communism, ridding the world of dangerous germs. We became a consumer nation and believed that man-made top nature. Formula was better than breast milk. McDonald's was better than home cooking. Our doctors were Marcus Welby's, the most trusted men on the planet. When a doctor told you he had a pill that would prevent miscarriage, he believed he was helping you and you believed him. We were not naive, but we had faith in the system. Some of the interesting things about the DES story is how it became popular. And it's interesting to look back, just to sort of quickly, I'm just going to finish up the DES story a bit, is that it really was used, <clears throat> it was pushed by Harvard professors that really did believe they were doing good. It was used by people either who trained under them or went on to go elsewhere and taught their students to do the same. And it sort of shows you how medicine works, that a lot of things you just get from your teachers. I had spoken to some physicians, obstetricians, who were either in residency or training around when DES came out. And they said, you know, one doctor said to me, you know, I was in Iowa, and my mentor looked at the research and said, this doesn't really make sense to me. Don't ever use DES. But if you trained with the, with the people that made the drug, then they sort of, or that were using it, you know, so it really depends on where you train. I just recently interviewed Howard Jones, who developed America's first IVF baby. And it's another story, he's 99, and he, his brain is like, works better than most of ours put together. It's unbelievable how, you know, how this guy is so together. But anyhow, I gave him my book. We were talking about IVF babies in the history, but I gave him my book, and he sat and went right to the DES chapter. And he loved his wife. His wife is a reproductive endocrinologist. They worked together at Johns Hopkins. And he said to me, I have to, and his wife died about five years ago. He said, I have to tell you, we knew those Harvard studies, and we asked for them here. And my wife, Georgiana, read all their research, read all their theories, and she said to us, these don't make sense. We are never using this drug at Johns Hopkins. 
you know, and he was so proud, but it's, but when you see, like, when you look at, there were pockets, when you look at the DES babies, they, a lot were in Massachusetts, a lot, you know, were either in California if one of the Smith's disciples went to train there, and to me, it's an interesting way of sort of how medicine works and how the system works. Um, now I'm going to skip ahead so we can, I'll, I'll skip ahead so we can finish up, because I hate to end with DES, because it's such a downer of a story. Um... And I think I will finish up by coming to now. And I just want to read a little bit about my sperm shopping chapter. Because this was fun. And it's so opposite DES because it's so much, in some ways, so much more fun to work on. So I'm just going to read about sperm and then we can go to some questions. Okay. My, my, my day in my sperm bank. The most gorgeous guy is on a California sperm bank website. He has chiseled features, wavy blonde hair, and a toothy smile. He's wearing a cap and gown. Presumably, he graduated from somewhere. He'd be the perfect specimen if he were donor 3536. Most donors are anonymous, so you cannot connect photos to numbers. For that matter, shoppers have no way of knowing whether the sexy cover boy even left a deposit at the bank. The point of the photo is to whet your appetite for all sorts of men who store assets, not to claim that the guy really did. In a handwritten essay scanned online, donor 3536 wrote, I am a funny and easygoing type of person. I'm also a hard worker and always striving to make my dreams come true. His message to the potential semen recipient you should enjoy life and do everything you think is possible. It's important to stay focused on your dreams, but it's also important to sample the offerings that life has. His hobbies included good things such as drawing, photography, travel, and biking, but he also added video games. Ew, would the kid be addicted to PlayStation? That was a scary thought. Um, wait, let me... For a fee, you can get more information about 3536's likes and dislikes. At least shoppers can assume he's decent looking because ugly men are rejected. Even if you're not in the mood to buy sperm, it's fun to window shop. With so many websites, sperm shopping is easily accessible to anyone who wants to try to understand this relatively new and booming business and to get an idea of what makes so many women what so many women have gone through to experience pregnancy and have a baby genetically linked to them. From a buyer's perspective, it appears fun at first glance. You are the queen bee choosing your little worker bee. But the more you seriously delve into this modern game of house, making believe you really want a donor dad, reality will hit. Sperm shopping makes dating seem simple. When you're in the market for a man, you have a few drinks. With any luck, you fall in love and in time you make babies. Then you take the bad with the good. When you have to pick a sperm, you analyze the pickings from a website, the skinny vial is shipped overnight to a fertility specialist, and then if all goes well, you get pregnant and go on to your next specialist, the obstetrician. To get your man, your man's sperm that is, you deal with a lot of middlemen. You are not picking a spouse, we are trying to create your dream child. And I'll just end with one little thing if I can say. Well, two things, and then I'll end and open to questions. One is, the other thing I learned from the book is that any, most things that we do knew, there was someone trying it way before. So you had mentioned Dr. Sims, which I'm not going to get into his whole story with working with slaves, but the other thing Sims did in 1867 is he, he would take, if someone was having trouble getting pregnant, 
he would take sperm and, you know, knock out the woman with ether just so she wouldn't be embarrassed and then shove a sample of sperm up her using a turkey baster or whatever he used. Um, sometimes it was the husband's sperm. Apparently, sometimes this was done with donor. We're not ever sure who the donors were. Um, but doctors kind of kept this to themselves. We do think that there was some sperm donation going around for a long time. And But it was Sims who actually wrote about in the medical journal and infuriated everyone. He infuriated doctors because he sort of spilled the beans on this secret practice. And he repulsed, you know, other people that picked up on it. A few newspapers picked up on it and were horrified. And then one last thing, getting into um, egg freezing, which is my last chapter. And I did say eggs are really complicated, which is the good thing. And the bad thing, they're hard to thaw. I went to, there's one, not surprisingly, for-profit egg freezing place. You know, most of these are done in clinical research. But for, oh, as one woman put it, for the same price that you can pay for fake boobs and Botox, um, you can pay to have your eggs frozen. That's why she rationalized why she did it. You know, even though we're not sure it works, you know, all of her friends were paying so much for fancy cars and fake breasts that she decided to pay for her eggs frozen. I went to one of their marketing meetings when all these women were sitting there, you know, and you know that they're single, you know that they're worried, should they be freezing their eggs? Is this new modern technology? And they had women up there giving testimonials, why it's the best thing. Okay, so the weirdest part of all my research was when the question and answer time of this egg freezing thing. And this one woman raised her hand and said, um, when do you start mentioning it, like when you're dating? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to mention you've frozen your eggs? Because I was thinking it's like a good thing because then the guy won't think you're desperate. Like you actually, you know, you're not dying to get pregnant because you can. You have your eggs frozen. And then, and I thought, people, no one left then. No one left. And they're just like, well, you know, the one said, well, I wouldn't mention it right away. And I'm like, who, who even thinks of mentioning their gynecologic history on a first date? I'm like, guys, maybe that's why you're here. Like, don't talk like OBGYN visits. You just met the guy. And then secondly, someone said, when should you put it on your, like, whatever, you, you know, like those dating, whatever you call them, like the dating things online? Do you need to list it in your profile? And they went into this debate over whether, yeah, maybe it's a good idea. Maybe you should say have, have had eggs frozen. Anyhow, I left shortly after that. I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe it. So anyhow, I'm going to end with that note. I could go on and on. Apparently I did. Um, but we can open this up to questions. On Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I think that this chapter is, and as a journalist I can say this, how journalists sometimes really screw things up. Because I think Twilight Sleep um, could have been honed better and would have been better if maybe the journalist actually reported accurately on the story and said, look, guys, this is what happens. It's not perfect. But here's the deal. Some of you might like this, and this is what goes on. And yeah, there were, but what happened was, Everyone was like, this is the greatest thing, this is the greatest thing. You know, you go into the hospital, and then you handed your baby. And then, of course, what happens is, yeah, a few women start saying, I hated it. Or wait, you know, they have. there's a picture in one of the history books. It shows a woman that broke a tooth, 
like woke up with like scabs on her chin and lost a tooth because she was thrashing about so much she banged into the rail of her bed. So and that's what that's what sort of led to its popularity started waning. You know, and some of the people were used to, well, if we didn't hype it up in the first place, maybe, you know, what would have I don't know. I don't know. You know, I think some women said, but, you know, I don't know. But I'm sure some women did because, you know, we didn't know the dose. The, the really fascinating part is that the president, you know, what, you know, all these women, they, they, they started a Twilight Sleep Association in New York. And, you know, they marched and they, they had parades. And the president of the Twilight Sleep Association died in childbirth. And her husband, her his first comment that he said to the Times was, it wasn't to do with twilight sleep. We're still believers in it. And then the woman's next door neighbor in Brooklyn started an anti-twilight sleep association. So having your present done in childbirth did not bode well for them. But I don't know. You know, there were some bad things coming out, though, about it. Yeah, I don't know. And it's always hard. You know, it's always hard. Do they really remember it? Do they come, you know, think about it after, you know? I mean, there are people that say they remember being born. I mean, I didn't that. I swear to God, there are. There are actually people out there. And there's like a psychologist in California I talked to who can help you go back and remember being born. You know, I didn't go on, it, it became just a limiting thing, because I don't talk about everything that goes on in modern positions. I thought there's so much, I mean, to be honest, that's one of the real reasons. I thought there's been so much written about modern midwifery and what's going on. And so when I went to talk about now, I don't really talk about, I mean, I talk about sperm banks, I talk about egg freezing. Um, but I don't really, I mean, I don't even talk about the nice birthing rooms that they have. I kind of decided, like, I just sort of picked and chose of sort of what I think are sort of some of the extreme examples or what what resembles what's going on today. So I, ta I have the chapter on women that deliver their babies by themselves. No midwife, no doctors, no nothing. You know, and they just think it's better not to have any strangers around. And to me, that was sort of emblematic of some people that are angry about the whole medical establishment. But I just, um, you know, I, I sort of just felt that so much has been written about it now. And I, I hint towards it in that chapter because I speak to Maureen Corey, who's at, who's at the birthing center, and I get her comments about what she thinks of, you know, these women that don't have any help. Um, but, so. I was just curious, No, you know, I missed it. My mother did, and she kept saying, get tickets, and then I did. And then I was having trouble getting tickets, and it went out, and I'm so mad that I missed it. I was No, I knew the history. I was dying to see it, and I went to get tickets, and it was like over by the time like I got around to do it. It's a fascinating history. Yes. 